One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. From the Financial Times, this is Hard Currency. Time to talk about Brexit again. But when will we stop talking about it, at least from a global perspective? Will Brexit develop contagious qualities all over the world, or will the rest of the world be able to quarantine the aftereffects of Brexit around the UK and maybe Europe, but no further? I'm Roger Blitz, and welcome once again to Hard Currency, the weekly podcast of the Financial Times on all things foreign exchange. Working out the potential Brexit contagion means looking into how others are reacting to it in China and the US as well as the UK. And with me to discuss all these issues in the studio is Michael Metcalf, Head of Global Macro Strategy at the financial services firm State Street. Michael, welcome. The quarantine issue or the contagious issue, how much is this dominating market thinking at the moment? I, I would say completely. Uh, and, you know, I, th- I think there are a number of ways to think about contagion. Uh, you know, the first way, I think, is to think about the economics of it. So uh, you know, there are some forecasts that the UK will now uh, slow quite rapidly, perhaps even into in, in a recession. Uh, I think the one thing that we would say about that is that you know, it's very early days, of course, but uh, one of the things that we track at State Street is the, uh, uh, the prices of goods online, which we aggregate up into a, an online measure of inflation. And the one thing I can tell you about that is that following the Lehman shock, which was a you know, different, but a, a shock to confidence, um, online prices in the States fell 1% in just 10 days. Now, the interesting thing for the UK is that we're te- you know, we've got 10 days of data now for yeah. the UK, uh, and actually we're up 17 basis points, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's yeah. a lot better than a fall of 1%. So uh, you know, th- there's a first reading, perhaps, that the UK isn't as slowing, at least immediately, as, as, as people fear. So give us some other data readings from post-Brexit. What else have you discovered? Well, so the, the other thing that now, now the one thing that has changed is that for, forecasters have very dramatically revised down their view of UK growth already, um, and you know, what does that mean for the global economy? And, and I, I think there we're, we're, there's an interesting kind of counterpoint to, to some of the, the the doomsayers, if you like, about uh, you know, the impact on the global economy, which is that if you if you add Brazil and Russia together. They, they add up to around 4% of global GDP, which is the same, roughly the same as the UK. It's actually, it's actually a little bit higher. Um, and, of course, both of those economies contracted over 4% last year. Yes. Uh, and you know, the, global economy, the global recovery continued. And so you know, the global recovery can still continue uh, even if the UK economy uh, you know, weakens even as much as people expect. The global so, economy has, is, has, has form in looking at shocks and their contagious effects. That's your point. I mean, that, that, and, and those, so therefore it shouldn't have the same worry, if you like, about Brexit. I mean, perhaps not. And, and, but the, the, one, the one kind of – and the reason why, of course, that, that we have this issue of contagion is that, that markets move faster than real economies. And you know, the, the one thing that we have observed quite clearly in the last couple of weeks is a, uh, you know, what is you know, a relatively normal symptom of crisis periods, which is that markets become systemic. They become narrowly driven. You know, correlations between assets rise. And certainly in that case, we've definitely observed evidence of that across global equity markets that they've become more narrowly driven. So whatever the evidence, investors are still behaving you know, together in a, in a slightly ner- in a nervous global way. Is that Absolutely. So, so prices are moving together. The, 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 the other kind of angle to it, though, and, and the kind of the important follow up from that is actually how investors react. Because 
in crisis periods, markets tend to be quite a liquid and prices can move quite a long way without a lot of flow behind them. Uh, and so you know, one of the kind of the curious things for us to observe is uh, you know, how have investors reacted to this shock? And you know, so far we have uh, just over a week's worth of indicators to show us how they've reacted. Uh, and you know, the interesting thing actually is that it's by no means blanket risk aversion. Uh, if anything, I'd almost say that there's elements of optimism there. You know, for instance, demand for emerging market debt has gone up. Uh, and your demand for other risky assets, you know, risky currencies in some places has gone up. Um, so, you know, you, while you know, there's a lot of focus on sterling's crash uh, and the knock-on implications and you know, the weakness in the European banks in particular, you know, where prices have really dislocated, investor confidence actually looks, so far, looks okay. Looking at it another way is to ask whether Brexit benefits anybody globally. Do you hold thoughts on whether, for example, emerging markets might actually find this a benign monetary accommodative period in which risk assets can come back into play? Absolutely. And and look, I I think in part, one of the reasons perhaps why the investor response so far has been relatively sanguine is that there's an assumption. There's an assumption that policymakers will step in to prevent and backstop any bad outcomes. Uh, and so that basically means that in the developed world, rates are lower for longer. You know, Fed rate hikes apparently have been taken off the table. You know, we're looking for cuts in the UK. We're going to look for policy responses from the ECB, I have no doubt, and certainly from the Bank of Japan as well. So you know, the idea that rates are lower for longer in the developed world just makes emerging market yields all the more attractive. And you know, going back to that original point about global growth, if global growth just slows a little bit because of Brexit, then actually emerging markets are actually in a reasonably good position from this. So what does this mean about looking at the the currency channel to detect the after effects of Brexit uh, globally? Um, I mean, we, we are in the UK are obsessed with looking at sterling and its impact in the UK. But uh, is it is it still going to take time for us to see the global impact of sterling through the currency channel? It seems to be that the on, on from an FX point of view, nothing seems to be really moving other than sterling. Well, it, it, it's it's fascinating because you know I think if, if you look at the the, the Brexit reaction, uh, you know it's all been the currency, and actually underlying assets in the UK have actually performed quite well. You know UK equities, and, and you know, and yes, it's partly because the, the the FTSE in particular is very international and it's it's waiting. But uh, you know, and but gilts have outperformed as well. Uh, and in fact, actually, that was it was it was notable that that's how investors, in general, large investors, the way they prepared for for Brexit was that they bought UK assets and hedged the currency risk. And actually, they've, proved, they've been proved right. And so, you know, I think that it sort of makes sense that the currency is a very efficient channel by which to play you know, potential shocks like Brexit. Um, and, you know, it was also clear, obviously, in the FX options market, that the FX options market for sterling was the, the only market really that uh, showed a, a very high degree of preparedness for the vote. Um, and you know, so it's interesting to that extent. So you know, right now, uh, you know, the, the 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 market sort of focus seems to be shifting towards uh, you know, the potential for political contagion. Uh, and and you know, we, we've gotten through the Spanish vote, and you know, the vote for Podemos didn't go up, so it shows that the the contagion from Brexit politically perhaps isn't a straight line. Um, but now everyone's looking at this referendum in October in Italy, uh, and you know, you know, perhaps suggesting you know poor outcomes from that. And could that be another Brexit-like scenario where the Italian government potentially falls, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the interesting thing there, actually, is that the options market for the euro uh, is so far 
showing no sign of a spike in volatility around October, no demand for protection, no skew for euro weakness or anything like that. So the market is talking about it a lot, but it's not yet there in the FX options market like Brexit was. We've assumed that Brexit would would create further Euroscepticism around Europe. The opposite, of course, may also be true, which is that actually Europe looks at what's happened in the UK with Brexit and says we're not going to have any of that and that actually it's going to coalesce much more around the whole European project and the euro. Is that possible? Yeah, and look, I think that you know the the results of the Spanish election were were, were one data point. Uh, I think we'll need to see what happens in the next sort of three to six months as to as to how the European authorities respond, uh, you know, how they deal with the Brexit negotiations, uh, and also as well just how slow, you know, how quickly the UK economy slows as well will also be an important factor in this. Is that you know, you know, you're right now it has so far been a, I think it's fair to say it's been a pretty turbulent exit so far. Yeah. Uh, and there has been a lot of uncertainty, and, and, and that may, at the margin, discourage other other uh, other countries. But the one thing that isn't going to go away anytime soon is that I think that markets will have to deal with an ongoing political risk premium, uh, and there'll be a lot more focus on uh, on opinion polls, and in particular how uh, you know some of these anti-establishment or nationalist parties are doing in each poll. And I think you know it. Uh, you know, as, as I'm sure you, are, you know, I've, I've been working in FX and rate markets for for twenty twenty five years, uh, and you know, it's not often, in fact, that politics has driven markets in that period. Uh, but I get the sense that in the next five years, that they will continue to do so. Um, but but the market will always turn to what whatever's the next thing on the economic calendar, and that happens to be payrolls on Friday. To what extent is the market going to simply switch attention? Oh, I would, I would love that to be the case. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, <laughs> I don't know about you, but the, the, the listeners must be so sure. tired of the word Brexit. But so, so one thing I would say is that uh, both the Bank of England and the Fed had had had, and many organisations, international organisations, had highlighted what a risk uh, Brexit posed to the outlook. So it therefore becomes quite difficult for them to backtrack on that. Uh, and you know, obviously, it has been a systemic event. But the interesting thing, I think, about the, the strength of the U.S. economy is that uh, you know, so far, there's no evidence of any economic contagion to the U.S. And, and even you know, in Europe, obviously, we have some evidence of financial market stress. And you know, the ECB's systemic stress index has risen. Uh, European bank CDSs have risen but much, much, much less so in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we know that the Fed pays a lot of attention to financial conditions, but financial conditions in the U.S. have not deteriorated. And so, you know, if payrolls does pose some kind of a rebound, certainly inflation in the U.S. is only going one way, and that is up from here. And so, you know, they've been afforded the luxury of ignoring the unemployment data because inflation was so benign. I think that will change in the second half of this year. And, and therefore, there is a, you know, wasn't that long ago that many Fed officials, in fact, Fed officials as a group, were warning that interest rate expectations in the U.S. were too low and that the market was too complacent. So we could be heading for a stronger dollar, and that might mean a weaker renminbi. And what did you make of the increasing depreciation of the renminbi, which has actually moved pretty much lower since Brexit? Yes, that 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 has been interesting because actually, you know, you know, going back to you know, the last time markets were systemic in part was because of a similar kind of move in the renminbi. Uh, and so, you know, it may well be that we're blaming all this on Brexit. In fact, actually, we should have been looking. We should have been looking at China instead. I think what I would say about China is that with these online prices that we collect, actually, uh, we don't just generate inflation estimates. We also uh, generate a very large, think of it as a supersized Big Mac index, where we compare 
the prices of many, many goods, not just a Big Mac. And we actually find that fair value for the RMB is, is actually still above seven. And so, you know, what China is doing is that they're removing what is a competitive disadvantage for them, really. And so, you know, I don't think I don't think it'll get to seven straight away, of course. But I, I, I think that, you know, we can expect ongoing depreciation from the Chinese RMB, you know, going forward. Uh, and, you know, in part, what they're doing there is, is, is just catching up with the rest of the basket as well. There is an element of that that's going on there, that the you know, dollar RMB is adjusting uh, relative to the RMB against other currencies. Okay, so we've successfully made the case for quarantining Brexit around the UK. Just my final question to you, Michael, is this. If that's the case, what does it mean for sterling? If the rest of the world is not as worried as perhaps we thought it was about Brexit, does it actually help the case for suggesting, well, well, therefore, the risk to the UK and the risk to sterling is not as great, and therefore, we won't see as much of a depreciation in the pound? Or actually, is the whole issue about quarantining means that you are on your own, it is your own self-induced mess, therefore, you must suffer the consequences? What do you think is going to happen to sterling if we see the rest of the world allowing the UK to get on with it and not feeling the after effects? I think if the slowdown is sort of limited or, as you say, quarantined to the UK, we're going to go back to, uh, I think, what was quite a familiar theme for currency and rate markets last year, which was one of rate divergence. Because uh, I think, you know, if you go down the global panic route, everyone eases together. And, and, and actually, in that situation, the dollar probably still wins. Um, but I think in the situation where this is you know more of a UK-centered event, first and foremost, then we're back to you know relative rate differentials driving further sterling weakness, um, but you know obviously a lot of that will depend on just how big the UK slowdown is and how much the Bank of England can meet market expectations of lower rates. My thanks to Michael Metcalf of State Street. To keep up to date with all the FX news on the FT, have a look at uh, ft.com forward slash markets. We will be back for the next instalment of Hard Currency when we'll be discussing central bank reaction to Brexit, not least from the Bank of England. Join us again next week. Goodbye.